Is real estate your next income stream? Let's find out what it really takes. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because if you don't find a way to make money in your sleep, you'll work until you die. Hat tip to Warren Buffett for that one. Now, I'm not anti-work by any means, but I am pro-passive income, or at least pro-building some time-leveraged income streams that don't require ongoing direct involvement to get paid. One of the classic examples of this type of business is rental real estate, possibly one of the oldest side hustles in the books, right? Buy a house, rent it out, tenants pay it off for you. People have been doing this for centuries. But does real estate make sense for you? In this episode, I hope to shed some light on that question with help from Zach Evanish. Zach's focusing his side hustle energy on building a portfolio of single family rentals thousands of miles away from where he lives. He's up to 11 properties so far and has graciously agreed to answer some of my own questions about real estate investing, along with several more from the Side Hustle Nation community. And aside from his firsthand experience as an investor, Zach also brings the unique perspective of being employee number three at Roofstock.com, a marketplace designed to make it easy to shop for, compare, and purchase rental properties. SideHustleNation.com slash Roofstock is my referral link if you want to check that out and support the show at the same time. Notes and links for this one, plus the full text summary of our call, are at SideHustleNation.com slash Zach. It's Z-A-C-H. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with Zach after the interview. We begin this conversation with me asking why I'd want to buy a single family home and all the potential headaches that come with it when I can buy shares of a REIT, a real estate investment trust, and have instant diversification, cash flow, and have a team of supposed professionals picking deals and managing the whole thing for me. Ready? Let's do it. To me, with direct ownership, I have more control. When I'm buying through a REIT, I'm generally buying a, a basket of, of homes or exposure to a large basket of office buildings or multifamily, whatever that REIT is investing in, versus myself when I'm buying a single family home. I know exactly which property I'm buying. I know I, how I can add value to that property, whether it may be through rehab or adding rooms or increasing the rent. So to me, I have a little more control buying directly versus buying in a, a basket through a REIT. And you like that control. See, for me, it's like I'd rather have the experts handle that stuff and I'll go, I'll go do the podcast. Like I'll go make money in other ways. Correct. But I also see, as you mentioned, I own some rental properties. My wife and I have 11 single family homes as well as some ownership in some apartment buildings. And I probably spend one hour a week total on those properties. I think if you buy right and have right partners on the ground, this can be a very passive investment while still knowing exactly what I'm owning versus putting my trust in a fund manager who's thousands of miles away who I've never met. So you're based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Are your properties here in California too, or are they all over the map? They are not. You know, I'm looking for diversification outside of California. One, prices are just too expensive here. It doesn't provide the type of returns and cash flow that I'm looking for. So I own in Florida, Georgia, and Ohio. Oh, okay. Is there a target cash flow or return on investment, cash on cash, ROI type of metrics that you're looking for before a deal becomes attractive to you? Yeah. And you know, some of the things we can cover are some of the criteria 
basic criteria, for instance, the 1% rule, where you know, okay, this is a deal worth diving into further. Most of the properties I've purchased have been between 100 and 140,000 with rents between 1,000 and 1,300. I tend to focus on kind of B and, and C neighborhoods with stronger school scores, generally closer towards downtowns where I'm seeing really strong appreciation and rent growth. I am not laser focused on the current cash flow right now. I am building for the long term. So if the property breaks even and maybe provides a little cash flow a month right now, for me, that's good enough because the tenant is paying down the mortgage. I am banking on the long-term appreciation as well as the rent growth to help me hit my my passive income goals down the line. Okay, so you're saying this is what the rent is today, but I know over the course of 5, 10, 15 years, I project it to be X. Correct. Yeah, I look back through historical numbers and even with very conservative 2 to 3% rent growth, you know, if I look down the lines 10, 20 years, that home that's rented for 1200 is going to be at 16, 1700 and that's where I'm really going to blow away my cash flow goals. I'd rather focus on buying a quality property right now, even if it kicks off a little bit lower cash flow. Okay, so that's one interesting thing about the Roofstock platform is you can kind of toggle all these different variables and say, this is my target ROI. And then you see like, oh, these properties are in some kind of questionable neighborhoods where you're saying, look, I'd rather spend a little bit more, get it in a, a good school district and bank on this rent appreciation over time rather than going for this cap rate home run out of the gate. Correct. Yeah, I think that's one of the errors people make when they're new to real estate investing is whether it's through Roostock or through a local real estate agent, they look at the fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollar homes, which can be in a little bit rougher areas or need additional work, but see a really strong immediate cash flow and think that's the way to go. But generally those homes are going to see slower appreciation, slower rent growth, because they're generally in all renter neighborhoods versus a little bit nicer home. And we're still talking, you know, very affordable, 100 to 160,000 are going to be in areas which have a little more owner occupied residences. And I think you're going to be able to see stronger rent in a price appreciation. So one thing we really focus on with investors at Roostock is before you start investing, let's really take a step back and understand what your short and long-term goals are. You know, my parents have started buying properties through Roostock and and their self-directed IRA. Their number one focus is replacing their current income. So cash flow is their primary objective. So they're looking for a certain kind of property that fits that criteria versus myself. I have a little bit longer time horizon, so I'm able to take a little less cash flow right now in the hope that long-term it will play out to my advantage. Okay. Now, when you say closer to downtown areas, do you mean like closer to the downtown, like downtown Atlanta, for example, or like closer to the more suburban downtown, like of the specific like neighborhood that you're in? Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, I, I tend to look for things walking distance to coffee shops and restaurants and, you know, is there a new trendy coffee shop coming in? Is there a Whole Foods coming to the area, things like that. And generally, you know, to do that, you have to buy in areas before they are kind of ready to have the higher price property. So it could be a little bit longer of a hold because you're waiting for that neighborhood to really get to the point where you're seeing price appreciation. But yeah, generally the homes I'm buying are closer to downtown areas versus going out into the suburbs a little further where you're going to see more owner-occupied type properties 
with stronger schools. So I kind of look for a blend of the both too, but where I've done the best are properties that are within, you know, 15 or 20 minute drive of downtowns. Okay. Were you nervous at all buying a home? You would say, well, it's a hundred thousand dollar house. Like it's a pretty affordable house, but like buying it sight unseen from the other side of the country, did that make you nervous at at first? It a hundred percent did. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been in real estate for over 20 years now. I did my first deal in college prior to joining Roofstock. I was the director of acquisitions for a single family REIT. So I have a good feel for for how REITs operated. And even then, still buying my first home through Roofstock, definitely there was some nerves. But I think those can be alleviated by having a conversation with the local property manager, doing a deep dive on all the diligence that Roofstock does. And Roofstock provides some things like a rent guarantee and a money back guarantee, which I think provides some additional assurances, as well as you can re- review the 70 or 80 plus positive Google reviews we have on our site to see how other investors just like you are, are succeeding in, in achieving their goals through our platform. Yes, like this, this platform actually exists. This house actually exists. It's not just some Google Earth images and we took your money and run. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over three and a half million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. You you mentioned the property management piece of this, and we've had other guests on the show, like the only way that I'm making this work is by self-managing because I can't afford this seven to 10% property management fee off the top. Now you're kind of saying like, hey, I spend an hour, was it an hour a week or an hour a month? Hour a week. Okay, I'm spending an hour a week on this. And I imagine the reason for that is because you have the, this property management services in place. I'm curious, 
your take on self-managed versus making this property management fee worthwhile? Yeah, I took a look at it and I look at the fees they charge, what I end up spending on property manager versus what else could I be using with that time. And I think it makes more sense for me to be spending that time on my full-time job at Roostock or spending time, I have a new daughter who's a month old, I'd rather be spending time with her. Oh, congrats. Thank you. Versus worrying about collecting rents for my tenants. And again, I'm, I'm banking on the long-term and having the tenant pay that mortgage. So I see a quality property manager as more than worth what I'm paying for them. I would pay them 15% and I'd still see that as a very attractive proposition for myself for the ones who do a quality job. The ones that don't, I totally agree. It's it's not a good investment. That's why Roostock spends so much time finding quality property managers on the ground for you to work with. In what way are the property management services like incentivized to look out for your interests as an owner? Like how do you it sounds like there's some vetting being done by the platform, but how do you align their interests with yours? Yeah, really good question. That's exactly what you want. You want incentives to be aligned. You want property managers who kind of have that investor mindset. So things like making sure there are groups who don't profit off of repairs. And so they aren't incentivized to have you go out and have that work done. They are incentivized to keep the home occupied. So they only get my 6 to 10% of the rent when my home is occupied. There are some groups who, like I was mentioning before, will take a margin on repairs. That doesn't quite feel right because then they're making money every time they send a vendor out. I want people who are focused on providing a solution to my tenant. If they call and say, hey, the drain's not working, instead of them saying, great, let me call and get a someone out there right now, they're going to call and say, hey, did you check the disposal? Hey, here's a short YouTube video on other things of tenants have experienced and, and let them kind of help themselves, that at scale can save a lot of money. And those are the type of type of groups we work with. Yeah, absolutely. Instead of being like, ah, the uh, hot water heater is broken again. Let's take another 10% contractor fee, general GC fee. Okay. That's helpful to try and say like, you're so hands-off, you're 3,000 miles away and trying to, you know, you're taking people's words for it in a lot of cases. I'm curious if you have any interaction with, the tenants, are you doing the tenant screening or are the tenants already in place? Or it's like, does the property management company handle all of that? They do. So the properties you buy through Roostock, 70 to 80% of our listings come with tenants in place. We've already vetted the lease and the tenant to some extent to confirm that they are current on their rent, their income to rent ratio when they sign the lease. And we'll provide a copy of that lease as well. So you have a good feel of where is this tenant right now? Look at their tenant payment history. But yes, my involvement with the tenant is very limited. I don't have any direct exposure to them. If that tenant moves out, I do work with the property manager in selecting the next tenant. And that goes as far as then sending me, hey, here's a breakdown of the interest we've received on the property. What do you think of these three tenants? One of them needs a dog. You know, One of them potentially had an issue a while back. Are we okay with that? things like that. So I work with the property manager in selecting the tenant, but direct interaction I do not have. Have you had a sense so far, uh, a typical tenure of a tenant? There's probably no such thing as an average or a typical, but like, you know, are people staying for years and years or is it like, hey, I had a one-year lease and now I'm moving? Yeah. The beauty of, of single family is tenants do stay longer, especially if you're comparing it to multifamily. 
These are generally more families who have kids and like we mentioned, schools, maybe they moved in because of those schools. So they're definitely going to dig in their roots a little bit further. I have one tenant who's been in my home for seven years. They have never missed a payment. It's like clockwork. It's the most passive investment property I've ever had. On average, the data shows that tenants and single families stay about three to three and a half years versus a year and a half or so for multifamily. Oh, okay. It was the same thing when we were moving into our current place. The landlord wanted a 18-month lease. I was like, nah, I really want 12. And we've been here for six years now, I think. It's like, we're not going anywhere. It's, the moving is such a pain, and it's a, it's a great neighborhood. So that's the thing. Have you looked at, this is the trendy thing, obviously, in real estate, is to transition properties from long-term leases, long-term rentals, to short-term. Like, oh, it pencils out to triple the, the revenue. If I do this as Airbnb, have you looked at any of that or just like that amount of, I I want that tenant to stay an average of three and a half years, like that three and a half days for Airbnb, like that turnover does not sound great to you. Yeah, I haven't for any of my properties. It's one of the things we are looking at at Roostock is, are there some properties that just make more sense as a short-term rental and we want to help people maximize cash flow? There are now property managers who specialize in short-term rentals. So if I was able to find one of those and they could make the ownership of that short-term rental as passive as I am for my long-term rentals, I would be into it. I have not really explored it. It's kind of been on the to-do list for for specifically one of my properties that's near downtown Atlanta, where I think it makes sense. So I do think it makes sense for people to explore both routes and see, all right, how much more is the cash flow going to be? How much more time would I have to spend? Can I find a good property manager? And just kind of weigh those two factors. If it's a pretty small uptick in the cash flow, maybe not worth it. But like you mentioned, if it's 50% or double the cash flow, probably makes a lot of sense to, to really dig in there and see what the time commitment would be. Right. Yeah. If you could make it as, as hands-off as it sounds like you are with the long-term stuff. And yeah, maybe there's you're going to be paying more turnover, probably more maintenance, more more fees. But if the overall top line is double or triple, maybe it maybe it still pencils out. Exactly. Are all of these 20% down kind of like typical or 25% down like investor financing deals? Yeah, on average, people are putting, I'd say 25 to 30% down. The minimum that a conventional lender requires for an investment property is 20% down. The more you put down, obviously, the higher your cash flow is going to be. But I think generally most people, especially with where rates are right now, are trying to maximize their leverage. And so a lot of people are, are putting 20% down. And the beauty then is your tenant is is paying the the mortgage and the properties are still cash flowing. And with interest rates where they are now, you can get a 30-year fixed interest rate in the fours, which is very attractive because you then know on that line in my expenses, that line is fixed for 30 years. And I still have a nice variance between all my expenses and my rent. I think that really provides people with some confidence. Is there a cash on cash return number that you're targeting? You know, I look at every every property differently. But yeah, I, I generally like to get kind of the 6 to 10% range cash flow. It doesn't have to be right out of the gate. But I, I need to see that, hey, once this property is stabilized, I'm going to be getting somewhere between 6 and 10%. And that's also a function of if this is a really strong property in a really good area, maybe I'm open to taking a little lower current cash flow 
because I feel like long term, I maybe get more appreciation. But if I'm not as bullish on that, that area long term, I may need a little bit higher cash flow to have confidence in that investment. Okay. Is that just a factor of re- like to get confident on a particular neighborhood, particular area? Is that just a factor of like pouring through all the data that Roofstock and other sites have on these neighborhoods? Is it having a, a friend who happens to be local, like go out and drive the neighborhood, give you like a video tour? How do you get that kind of like gut sense for a place being so far removed? Yeah, Roofstock has a neighborhood rating. So we look at a wide variety of data points, things such as median income, the percent employed in that neighborhood, the school scores, the percent owner-occupied homes versus renter-occupied homes, and those go from one to five-star neighborhoods. So we allow people to look at things through the investor lens and look for a risk-adjusted yield. So if I'm buying a property one-star neighborhood, I'm going to need a higher yield because it generally is going to be a little riskier versus if I'm buying a five-star property, which is generally going to be in an owner-occupied neighborhood with strong school scores, low crime, I see that as a very stable investment and my cash flow is going to be very stable. Just like I'm looking at stocks and bonds, I'm okay taking a little lower cash flow and return on that type of property. For you, is it just a factor of saving up for that next 20 to 30% down payment to keep building this portfolio? Or is it like, I'm going to hold off, the market seems kind of hot right now. What's the acquisition timing strategy? Yeah, I'm, I'm actively looking for the another two or three right now. To me, one of it is is finding the, the right time to spend some time on the site looking for properties. As an employee at Roostock, there's certain rules. Properties have to be on the site for, for seven or so days before I can make an offer. So yeah, it's just a function of, of having the time to take a look. I'm still very bullish on single family rentals, especially in the markets where we are in, Southeast and Midwest markets where I have been buying. I still think it's a great opportunity to buy, especially with where interest rates are. So I'm still actively looking. I'm pretty opportunistic, so I need to see a property where I think I can add some value. That could be a property that has below market rents or or needs some additional work where I think due to my experience, I can add some value and be in an equity position day one. Have you run into any hidden or expenses you didn't expect? Maybe not through Roofstock, but maybe like over the past 20 years of being in the real estate investing game. I'm just trying to think of what might a first-time investor not budget in? Yes, I have made more than my share of mistakes throughout the years. Things like, you know, one I think mistake I made on some properties were buying homes with with very small rooms. So I would buy bought a couple three-bedroom homes, which were 900 or so square feet. And without doing proper diligence, not realizing some of the bedrooms were very, very small so small where you know people were not able to use that for a family with their kids. So making sure, just like a, a home someone's going to move into, renters are looking for the same things. Kitchen, bathrooms, good-sized bedrooms for their kids, a nice backyard, proximity to school and restaurants. So I think just treating it very much like a home. Is this a home I would potentially want to move into versus having that lens of, oh, this is a rental property. I'm okay with it having little smaller rooms, or I'm okay with the floor plan being a little funky or it not having curb appeal. I don't think that's the right way to go. I would treat it just very similar to that lens you'd be looking through for a property you're going to be buying. Maybe not quite as strict, but I wouldn't look past some of those basic things which I had done in the past. And then also just making sure you have had an inspection report 
done by a trusted third-party vendor. You definitely want to make sure somebody has had eyes on that property. And so you understand one for the major things, foundation, water heater, AC, things like that. So you have, even if you are moving forward with that property, you have a good feel for your cash kind of expenditures over the next five years. At what point during the buying process does that inspection happen? For roof stock properties, it can either be done up front. So about 70% of the properties you see on our site have already been inspected. So properties go through the roof stock certification process. So if you are a seller and you have a property you're looking to market through our, our site, we will have the property inspected. We'll do diligence on the tenant. And only if it passes through those, there's no foundation issues and the tenant is in good standing. There's kind of a list of items. Then we'll put that property on our site. So 70% of the, the properties already have been inspected. So you can review that before you make an offer. For the ones where we have not yet inspected, you have an inspection contingency. So once your offer has been accepted, Roofstock would send in a third-party inspector out to the property. You then get that inspection report back. If everything checks out, great, you can move forward. If it doesn't, you could ask the seller for a price reduction or to make repairs. And there's terms in the contract, so if buyer and seller don't come to an agreement on those things, the buyer could back out and receive their deposit back. Okay, okay. Do you have a rule of thumb for an annual maintenance budget? Like we've had some friends in town who are like, well, just had to drop 30 grand on a roof. And you mentioned the foundation. We <laughs> had another set of friends who are like, hey, you got any travel coming up? What's going on? And they're like, no. And you want to know why? Because we're dropping 90 grand to redo our foundation. And it's like, oh my God, like I've never been happier to be a renter. Yeah, really good point. I mean, I think it goes back to having that inspection report done, right? And knowing what you're buying, those things should not just come out of the blue. I generally put about two to $300 a month in an account for my properties for uh, repair and maintenance. I do have an older home that I bought that I knew needed some additional work. So right after pur- purchasing it, I put about 10 grand in account to make sure it was there for when that, that roof needed to be replaced. I don't know if there's a certain standard, right? Because if I'm buying a 2019 property, probably don't need much of anything in that reserve account versus if I'm buying a 1940 home, I should probably have a couple hundred at least going into that account every month. And then once that account gets up to a couple thousand dollars and I feel really good about that, then maybe I can start to use the proceeds to buy other properties. Okay, gotcha. So again, it depends on the age of the property, depends on what came back in the inspection report. And the key is hopefully not getting surprised. And some of the stuff, like it just is going to age out. Like how long is a water heater going to last? How long is a roof going to last? It's predictable. But you just never know when it's going to happen. Yes, we want no surprises. What do you, you know, you mentioned some interest in some apartment buildings as well. And lately I've been seeing the advice, don't, don't mess around with single family. The, the real action is in multifamily. We're talking duplexes, fourplexes, apartment buildings. <laughs> what do you think about the advice? And I'm more of like the baby steps, like, why don't we try one house first and then go from there? Well, what do you think about the advice to, as a real estate investor, to start with multifamily? I, th- I like single family better because it's more liquid. There's multiple exit strategies. So if you think about a, a single family home, say I buy it as an investment, when five, 10 years down the line, after I've gotten some cash flow, maybe that home is appreciated, I could try to sell it to an investor because it provides a certain amount of cash flow. Or if, say, I bought in a really strong neighborhood and it's appreciated to a certain extent, I can have that tenant out and I can sell it to an owner occupied buyer. 
and they're generally going to pay a little bit of a premium for that property. If I buy an apartment building, it's only going to trade based on a certain cap rate or rate of return. So I'm only able to sell it to other investors. And generally, the fluctuations in that cap rate are strongly correlated with the fluctuation in in interest rates. When interest rates are really low, multifamily generally trades a little bit lower cap rate. As interest rates peak up, the cap rates come up as well. So I'm bullish on single family because uh, it provides multiple exits and I have that ability to sell it to an owner-occupied buyer long-term. Oh, okay. Interesting. So is the the multifamily strategy of yours just a little bit of diversification or was that a cash flow play as well? Like what, what got you into that side of things? Yeah, that was more opportunistic. I've just gotten into a couple syndicates with some friends who had bought some apartment buildings in the Bay Area in some areas where there were some rent control tenants and they had a strategy to significantly increase the property and the rents. So that was more opportunistically buying through a syndicate with some friends that I knew well. But generally, my, my focus has been for my own portfolio on, on single family. And syndicate just means pooling a bunch of money together? Correct. Yeah, and you generally have a, a lead investor who is buying the property and, and managing that asset. Okay, versus like, I got to come up with five mil out of pocket to, uh, to buy this building or something. Correct. And, and then it, it varies by, by the syndicate and the particular property or fund. But generally, there is your funds are locked out for a, a certain extent of time. Is there a type of investor on Roofstock or otherwise, but specifically thinking about like this out-of-state, hands-off investor that is having the most success with this investment strategy? Yes. Yeah, I think you nailed it. People who are looking to do out-of-state investing, they live in places like Seattle or San Diego or San Francisco, where even if they want to buy locally, they can't because of property price and the type of returns but they really want passive income. They want some diversification. And now with technologies like Roostock and some new innovations in property management, you can do that from hundreds or thousands of miles away with confidence and and build that cash flow. You also get the diversification. I'm in San Francisco, you're in the Bay Area. Our income is generally very strongly correlated with tech. But I'm buying in places like Cleveland, Ohio, or Cincinnati, or Atlanta, which don't have that that tech correlation. So there could be a decrease in tech, which would affect my personal income, my primary residence, my job, but it wouldn't necessarily affect my rental property because I don't think there's as strong of, of correlation with tech. So it's also a diversification outside of the tech industry. Okay, that makes sense. Have you had any investors come back and say this was awful. This was not what I expected at all. I want out. Like I'm curious, like on the flip side, I get, okay, this is a long-term play. This is a diversification play. This is potentially passive cash flow, long-term wealth building, all that jazz, tax benefits, blah, blah, blah. Is there the opposite person who is like, this was a huge, (laughs) I've made a huge mistake. Yes. Yeah. There have been, I mean, we offer a, uh, a roof stock money back guarantee. They've been few and far between. I can think of one example of an individual who I think just got very excited about buying a rental property. And once he's a little further along in the process and it was time to put in his deposit and then provide the down payment for the property, really took another look at, hey, do I have the proper reserves? And I think kind of got pretty scared in terms of, yeah, okay, I have the funds now to operate this property. But man, if you know if anything goes wrong, 
I'm then going into my 401k or credit cards or things like that. And that's not the experience we want everybody to have. So that person didn't move forward with that transaction. They're going to go back and wait till they've saved up enough funds, not only for the down payment in that property, but for the, they have the appropriate reserves. We want to help people have a good long-term experience and help them build wealth through real estate versus just you bought one property. I uh, hope that works out for you. Yeah. Is a single family that is where everybody is going to start or a single, single family residence is where everybody's going to start on the platform, but that's not the end game. Like, Hey, we want people coming back over and over again. And if that down payment is going to tap you out, that's probably not a, a great sign either. You want to have a little bit of a reserve. And I think the last question from the group on this one was the uh, excited late night radio or TV advertisement guy. He's like, yes, you can buy and flip houses in your neighborhood with none of your own money or credit. <laughs> and I feel like those hype <laughs> hype guys just give real estate investment a bad name, but they're obviously people are making money doing fix and flips and rehabs and buying distressed properties. And it's like, maybe that was the previous owner prior to Roostock coming to have it on their marketplace. Somebody did some rehab work probably but curious, like the fix and flip strategy or the late night seminar guy, like what is the official stance on this? Or like, have you ever been involved in the, the fix and flip game? Just curious to get, get your sense of that. Yeah. I mean, they're the worst. They make me sick when I watch those videos. And it's funny because you watch them and I think you realize how ridiculous they can be, but there are cases where people are going to those groups and, you know, some of these seminars are make sure you apply for a new credit card before you come to our conference because we're going to be upselling you on this next educational video. Roofstock believes on providing a lot of education for people, but spend your money on your investment property. Get your education through books and Roofstock webinars and speaking with people on our team. But really the best way to learn is through experience. And instead of spending 10 grand on some new zero down training program, save more money and use that to buy a property and buy your first property, make it sure it's a little more conservative a property like that case we, we talked about where someone had a little bit of cold feet. Uh, make sure you're doing all your diligence. You have property funds set away for reserves. We want people knowing what they're buying and being able to do this long-term. We want a bunch of very successful singles and doubles. Our site is not set up for people who are looking to come in and buy one property and have it be a home run that's going to change their financial future. We want to do this in a very methodical, data-based approach to building wealth through real estate. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's so much great free information out there. Roofstock, Bigger Pockets, Paula Pant, Coach Carson, tons of of good stuff out there. So you, you probably don't need to pay big bucks for one of these turnkey, turnkey, follow our turnkey system and you'll be a, a real estate millionaire tomorrow. There, there was a question I missed and it was an important one. It was about insurance. Some friends of ours actually are out of state investors and they had a house burned down and tenants were okay and they eventually got things sorted out, not nearly to the extent that they needed to, but they kind of had this extended battle with the insurance company. And so curious if you've ever had anything go drastically wrong where you had to call the insurance company or how do you pick a legit insurance provider for these houses? Yeah, I've had one experience with an insurance provider where a house I have in Atlanta, while it was vacant, it was broken into, 
and they stole the AC, they stole the stove, they stole the refrigerator, which had all just been purchased new. And so, yeah, I went back and forth with an insurance company and they were pretty difficult. Luckily, my property manager was a huge help and working directly with the insurance provider. And we did get it all sorted out, but probably took six or nine months, which I thought would be a pretty, pretty quick one month thing. You know, obviously someone broken into my house and had stolen these things. So it was a learning lesson for me to really do diligence on the insurance provider, but also thoroughly read through the coverage I'm getting. And there's something called loss rent coverage and some vacancy coverages to make sure if there is a long-term vacancy, you can maybe get that loss rent coverage. Or if the property is vacant, do they still cover? There are some companies that have really cheap rates, but when you look, read into the beneath what they're staying, when the property is vacant, they don't necessarily have all those coverages. And when a property is vacant is when the the vandalism or break-ins are going to happen. So I think it just comes down to knowing who you're going, working with, and really thoroughly reading through the the coverage, not necessarily just going with, hey, the coverage is kind of the same and this group is the cheapest. There's generally a reason for that. Is it typically a factor of the home's purchase price or appraised value? Like what's the insurance rate based off of? Yeah, it's a function of, the, like you said, the, the property value because they're saying, okay, this is the price I would repay for that property. And then also things like how much liability or loss coverage you have on that property. On my properties, I have about 500000 to a million in liability coverage for each property. And then I also have a, a pretty big umbrella policy on top of all that. So I have somewhere between 5 and $10 million of liability coverage on my properties, as well as about 10% above where I see the value for that property in terms of the the value that the insurance company has put on that property. Okay. And are you able to bucket your whole portfolio under one insurance provider or is it like, does it vary state by state and property by property? Yeah. All my Florida properties are under one insurance provider and then everything else is under a second. And then I have one umbrella policy that covers everything. Is there a well, maybe we're getting too deep into the weeds, but I'm curious if you have each of these like, in its own entity, like under its own LLC, just for like personal liability protection, or is like is that umbrella policy enough to shield you from anything that could happen? Yeah, it's a great question, and probably one of the top five most frequently asked questions on Roostock is: Should I create an LLC? When do I create an LLC? And I don't know if there's any perfect answer for myself. I have my properties in my own name and I've gone the umbrella insurance policy route to provide that additional liability coverage. The reason I keep them in my own name is because I've gone through conventional loans. I go through a kind of Fannie and Freddie programs and I get a conventional loan putting 20% down. And in order to do that, the loan needs to be in your own name. If I wanted to buy the property through an LLC, I would need to go with a non-conventional lender. Some people will say, you can buy a property under your name and then put it into an LLC afterwards. But just an area you need to be very careful and speak with your lender because some loans will have what's called a, a due on sale clause. So if I change it from Zach Evanish to Evanish Family LLC, potentially that lender could call the loan due. So if you are going to go with that strategy, just be very careful, read the fine terms in your loan. Oh, geez. Okay. And all of a sudden it's like, well, now I got to come up with the other 80% that I didn't have. Correct. Yeah, I think it's pretty unlikely they do call it. 
it's very important to speak with your lender and just be upfront about those type of things and, and really read through the the fine terms in your loan. And if it's a strategy you are going to go with, talk to your lender before you even get to that point. Well, Zach, this has been enlightening. Roofstock.com. If you want to check them out, we'll come up with a special bonus for Side Hustle Show listeners. Stick around for the uh, outro. I'll tell you a little bit about that. Where do you see this going? Like, Is the goal just to take over the world and buy up all these neighborhoods? Or is there a specific cash flow goal you're after, Zach, with all this acquisition? Yeah. For myself, I'm looking to get to about 50 homes. My passive income goal is about 25000 a month. It's going to be a function of, of doing that over long term and buying quality properties in quality neighborhoods. I, at Roostock, our long term goal is just to help as many people as we can build passive income. And like I said, in a, in a data-based approach and build long-term wealth through real estate. Very cool. Well, let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. It doesn't have to be real estate related, whatever investment or entrepreneurial wisdom you'd like to impart. Ooh, great question. My number one advice would just be to plan before you buy and really take the time to lay out your goals, short-term and long-term, what scares you the most in terms of buying rental properties. Start with one or two, get in the game, see how it feels. And then once you've bought one or two, you can say, yeah, this feels good. I'm okay buying properties outside of the local market and I want to go deep on this and then start to plan out your goals even further. So plan first, buy, and then kind of iterate on your plan from there. Sounds good. Well, really appreciate you joining me and sharing all this insider information on Roofstock and just a rental property investing in general. I know it's something that I've got a lot of questions about and based on the response from the audience, lots of questions from them as well. So really appreciate you taking the time and we'll catch up soon. All right, my top three takeaways from this call with Zach. Number one is to start with your goals in mind. It always comes back to why, doesn't it? For Zach, he's targeting that 25 grand a month in passive cash flow. And you can bet that's a powerful why to keep pursuing this strategy. But whether you want to own 50 houses or one or zero, know why you're doing it. If you're not clear on your goals, you're not going to be able to take the appropriate action today to begin walking toward them. Don't buy a house just because some guy on a podcast said it was a good idea. Buy a house because it's something you believe is going to serve your long-term best interests. And I'll add, serve them better than the alternatives because buying real estate, especially the way Zach describes with traditional 20 to 30% down payment financing, it's not cheap. There's a significant opportunity cost there. But that's takeaway number one. Start with your goals in mind. Takeaway number two is that this is a diversification play in the near term I see rental properties, especially in the markets Zach described, as a wealth preservation move. It's a way for him to take some of his day job winnings, call it, um, and take those off the table where it's not likely to see a dramatic decrease in value. And over the years and decades, it can become a wealth building vehicle as those mortgages get paid off. But kind of like he touched on, rental properties can be these non-correlated assets. They can be non-correlated with other areas of your portfolio, which gives you a cushion or a hedge against a downturn. Like if the stock market crashes and loses 20 or 30% of its value, your rental properties and the cash flow they're spinning off are probably going to keep hanging along a lot like they did before the crash. After all, your tenants still need a place to live. 
This is the argument that's probably most appealing to me about rental real estate in my current stage of investing, and that's this diversification idea, diversification play. Takeaway number three is to think long-term, where I've gotten burned in real estate in the past or have made bad decisions about real estate in the past is when I've been too focused on the short term. And in fairness, when things are awful and you're a couple hundred grand underwater, it's hard to see in the long term. But having lived through it now and maybe older and hopefully wiser, I'd be better able to take the deep breath, long-term view. In the next 10 plus years, do you see this city expanding or contracting? Do you see rents increasing or decreasing? Do you see this neighborhood improving? And when you do, I think you'll be better able to uh, weather the blips and bumps along the way, the late rent checks, the property damage, the maintenance expenses, the vacancies. That's takeaway number three. Take the long-term view. Once again, be sure to hit up sidehustlenation.com slash Zach, Z-A-C-H, to check out the full text summary of this episode. And sidehustlenation.com slash Roofstock will get you over to the Roofstock platform. And I'll warn you, even though I haven't pulled the trigger on any deals yet, it is a pretty slick shopping experience. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show, where you'll meet the woman who turned her part-time thrifting hobby into more than a quarter million dollars in sales. I'll see you then. Hustle on.